Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Brittany Pula, an Indigenous 21-year-old woman in Oklahoma, is facing four years in prison for having a miscarriage, something that happens in about one in six pregnancies. The Pula verdict is part of a nationwide trend of criminalizing pregnancy. It's especially acute for women of color and Indigenous women like Pula, a member of the Comanche Nation. Pula's miscarriage last January was bad enough but the institutions she came in contact with afterwards compounded the situation. She told the hospital staff about her history of drug use, a revelation that was critical for sound treatment. Rather than keep the information confidential, the hospital reported her to law enforcement. By May, Pula was in jail for manslaughter. She stayed there until her trial, unable to afford the $20,000 bond. The medical examiner in the case didn't cite drug use as a cause of the miscarriage, which occurred at about 17 weeks of pregnancy. Moreover, no law in Oklahoma says miscarriage is a crime. Despite science and the law, the judge told the jury to view the fetus as a person and consider manslaughter charges. After a trial that lasted one day, Pula faces a four-year prison sentence. Pula's case is part of a disturbing pattern. There are at least nine other open cases in Oklahoma that criminalize pregnancy. In the last 15 years, over 1,200 people have been arrested in this country for trumped-up pregnancy offenses, mostly poor women, women of color, and those who use drugs. The number of migrants being monitored under a surveillance program launched as an alternative to traditional detention facilities has grown astronomically during the Biden administration. A record number 136,026 immigrants are now being monitored under Immigration and Custom Enforcement's, or ICE, Intensive Supervision Appearance Program, ISAP, up from 86,000 at the beginning of the year. ISAP was launched in 2004 as a way to monitor immigrants in removal proceedings through a mix of home and field office visits, court tracking, and electronic surveillance. ISAP requires enrolled individuals to either wear ankle monitors, use a voice reporting system, or download an app called SmartLink. All three tools have been developed by BI Incorporated, a subsidiary of the private prison trust, the GEO Group, that has been awarded every ISAP contract since the program's inception. The poll, done in collaboration with Freedom for Immigrants and the Immigrant Defense Project, also found nearly 90% of respondents reporting that the ankle shackles impacted their mental health negatively. The proportion of immigrants in ISAP subjected to ankle monitors has dropped, and SmartLink has become the tool of choice, with close to 60% of immigrants in ISAP using it as of last month. The application is used for photo check-ins, where immigrants are required to take a picture of themselves at any given time that is then matched to the one taken at enrollment using facial recognition software. 
Immigrants spend an average of 615.1 days in the program, despite the recent influx in participants and a requirement that ICE review the terms of supervision for individuals every 90 days. And while it is billed as an alternative to detention, the number of immigrants in ICE custody has grown almost twofold to over 22,000 at the same time that ISAP has ballooned. More than 100 federal prison workers have been arrested, convicted, or sentenced for crimes since the start of 2019, including a warden indicted for sexual abuse, an associate warden charged with murder, guards taking cash to smuggle drugs and weapons, and supervisors stealing property such as tires and tractors. An Associated Press investigation found that the Federal Bureau of Prisons, with an annual budget of nearly $8 billion, is a hotbed of abuse, graft, and corruption, and has turned a blind eye to employees accused of misconduct. In some cases, the agency has failed to suspend officers who themselves had been arrested for crimes. Two-thirds of the criminal cases against Justice Department personnel in recent years have involved federal prison workers who account for less than one-third of the department's workforce. Federal prison workers in nearly every job function have been charged with crimes. In one case, the agency allowed an official at a federal prison in Mississippi whose job it was to investigate misconduct of other staff members to remain in his position after he was arrested on charges of stalking and harassing fellow employees. At the highest ranks, the warden of a federal women's prison in Dublin, California, was arrested in September and indicted this month on charges that he molested an inmate multiple times, scheduled times when he demanded she undress in front of him, and amassed a slew of nude photos of her on his government-issued phone. One-fifth of the Bureau of Prison cases involved crimes of a sexual nature, second only to cases involving smuggled contraband. In 1966, Mohammed A. Aziz and Khalil Islam were wrongfully convicted of assassinating civil rights leader Malcolm X. After spending a combined 42 years in prison, including several in solitary confinement, both have finally been exonerated. Aziz is now 83 and Islam died in 2009 without getting the chance to see his name cleared. When Malcolm X was shot and killed while speaking at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City, both Aziz and Islam were home with their families and no physical evidence implicated either one of them, yet they were still convicted. The exonerations came after a recent reinvestigation revealed compelling new evidence of the men's innocence, including documents known to the FBI and New York Police Department that were hidden from the defense at trial. Those documents not only contained information that pointed to people other than Aziz and Islam as the assassins, but also revealed that undercover police officers were in the ballroom when the shooting occurred and that prosecutors didn't disclose this information to the defense. Booking photos, also called mugshots, will no longer be released to the public in Oregon in an effort to protect the privacy and safety of people who have not been convicted of a crime. 
The law prohibits the release of mugshots except in specific circumstances, such as to other law enforcement agencies and to the public in case of an emergency. Proponents of the law said that releasing mugshots before a conviction can have serious safety issues. After the 2020 protests in Portland, many people who were arrested were doxxed, which means they were publicly identified or had private information about them published and harassed when their photos were released. Representative Janelle Bynum supports the measure. She said that after working on a bill about doxing, she realized how dangerous the release of booking photos could be to people's safety. Bynum said the release of mugshots was also disproportionately affecting people with mental health challenges. Law enforcement groups helped craft the legislation and it passed with bipartisan support. The Stop Line 3 Coalition officially launched a new campaign aimed at helping water protectors who oppose the massive tar sands pipeline and who are facing criminal charges in Minnesota. The campaign is calling for the charges to be dropped. Hundreds of water protectors are facing criminal charges for standing in defense of the water, climate, and the treaty rights of the Anishinaabe people. Water protectors and their supporters are demanding that Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison and Governor Tim Waltz work with county prosecutors to drop the charges against those who have resisted the pipeline. Despite treaty rights protected by the U.S. Constitution and affirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court, indigenous water protectors have been arrested for allegedly trespassing while in ceremony on land that federal law states they have the right to hunt, fish, and perform ceremonies on. The police, funded by $2.4 million from Enbridge, the company that constructed the pipeline, have responded to the peaceful Stop Mine 3 movement with surveillance, harassment, and physical torture, all of which violate the company's agreement not to engage in counterinsurgency tactics. Some water protectors are facing felony charges. Those charges are designed to deter water protectors from taking action. And now we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. Perilous is a project supported by a network of people who seek to gather and track information on prison uprisings, riots, protests, strikes, and other disturbances within public and private jails, prisons, and detention centers. Here are the disturbances they tracked in November 2021. During the weekend of October 30th, 2021, prisoners allegedly flooded pipes in unison at Alamance County Jail in Graham, North Carolina causing up to $90,000 in damages. The, quote, plumbing disaster, unquote, apparently seeped into the evidence room of the jail, destroying administrative documents. According to Alamance News, several other disturbances have occurred at the facility in the past few months, including one in late August that required outside reinforcements. Prisoners allegedly tore sprinklers off the wall and destroyed their cell block. On around November 4th, prisoners detained at the RCCC in Elk Grove, California, started a hunger strike to protest conditions surrounding COVID-19. According to KCRA 3 News, there was an increase of positive COVID cases at both of the two jail facilities in Sacramento County before prisoners organized the strike, with over 75 prisoners testing positive in the last week of October, and then 95 active cases on Tuesday, November 2nd. At the end of October, one prisoner had died due to COVID-19. KCRA 3 News 
interviewed prisoners detained at RCCC, including Dominic Smith, who said, quote, We're in danger. Somebody needs to care about us and they need to come in and investigate, unquote. As he discussed that there were more cases inside the jail than what they were reporting. KCRA 3 claimed that dozens of prisoners were striking. It is not reported if or when the strike has ended or whether their demands were met. On November 7th, a disturbance was reported at the Dolph Briscoe Unit in Dilly, Texas. According to KXAN News, prisoners refused to go to their cells and then broke a window and set a mattress on fire. Guards allegedly used a, quote, chemical agent, unquote, in response, and no injuries were reported. The reason for the disturbance is unknown. The Dolph Briscoe Unit is a state prison that has been used by the state to detain both state prisoners and migrants with, quote, low-level offenses, unquote, as a part of Operation Lone Star, the government's operation that started in March of 2021 to, quote, deny Mexican cartels and other smugglers the ability to move drugs and people in Texas, unquote. On the evening of Friday, November 12th, five prisoners escaped from Pulaski County Detention Center in Hawkinsville, Georgia. Allegedly, one prisoner refused to go into his cell, and others attacked a guard and got keys to leave the building. They then, quote-unquote, pushed down another guard and stole the guard's van. The five prisoners have been recaptured since Tuesday, November 17th. No injuries were reported. County officials claim the escape was due to staff shortages. On December 13th, two prisoners escaped from the Moore Detention Center in Okmulgee, Oklahoma. The details of the escape are unknown, but both prisoners, who were facing federal charges, were captured by U.S. Marshals on November 14th. On Monday, November 15th, prisoners in solitary confinement at the Maine State Prison in Warren, Maine, started a hunger strike to protest their living conditions. The Maine Prisoner Advocacy Coalition reported that prisoners began refusing meals in effort to draw attention to bad conditions, such as being locked in isolation for 22 hours daily, no access to religious services, and the lack of medical and mental health treatment. For two hours of recreation, prisoners are only permitted to go into an outdoor cage slightly larger than the cells. The Advocacy Coalition and the corrections officials have different estimates of how many on the unit participated in the strike. But the coalition said that all nine detained on the unit, quote-unquote, were on board, and at least five actively participated. The hunger strike ended on Thursday, November 18th. Portland Press-Herald reported that a corrections spokesperson claimed that it ended when, quote, one prisoner voiced a desire to join a policy working group that includes inmates and is focused on restrictive housing, unquote. There is currently new legislation in Maine being proposed to end solitary confinement, which will be deliberated on in 2022. On Sunday, November 21st, three prisoners escaped from the Bridge City Center for Youth in Bridge City, Louisiana. As of November 29th, 2021, they have yet to be captured. This is the third event that Perilous has tracked at this youth facility in 2021. The most recent event was on the evening of May 31st. A disturbance occurred at the Bridge City Center for Youth in Jefferson Parish, Louisiana. Five detainees received minor injuries. 14 were arrested for escape charges, and a staff member was hospitalized. Additionally, as Perilous tracked on April 28th, six detainees at the juvenile detention center had escaped. A staff member was injured during the escape from the Bridge City Correctional Facility, and five of the youth have been recaptured. 
A disturbance also happened at this facility roughly a year ago on April 20th, 2020, in which property was destroyed on four dormitory units and a SWAT team was called in. We close out this episode with a call we got from Adrian Espinoza, who's currently housed in Maricopa County in Arizona. Espinoza, who got his paralegal degree inside, has contributed to the Prisoner Correspondence Project, the Sylvia Rivera Law Project, and intends to work in the legal field upon his release. In his account, he mentions CRIPA, which is the Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act of 1980. It's a federal law intended to protect the rights of people in state or local correctional facilities, nursing homes, mental health facilities, and institutions for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. His account of his treatment, or lack thereof in the case of mental health support, in this facility is unfortunately not uncommon. Here he is. My name is Adrian Joshua Espinoza from Mesa, Arizona. I'm currently locked up in Phoenix, Arizona, Maricopa County Sheriff's Office, 4th Avenue Jail, Special Management Unit. The charges here that I'm facing are a bunch of assault on corrections officer charges that were conjured by Arizona Department of Corrections in 2019. That's when I was indicted and transferred here from prison. The charges started off in Arizona State Prison Complex, Alhambra. It's their intake unit. I was there in 2019 after spending 14 years already in prison for an armed robbery case in 2005, I was there for placement in a mental health unit that they have called Baker Ward. It's a licensed inpatient treatment facility for mental health patients. So when I was there, I was subjected to deprivation of medication. I was put in one of the worst places in Baker Ward. So I wrote a lot of grievances against them for all the misconduct that was going on there and the mistreatment of all the other prisoners too that were mentally ill and didn't have the wherewithal to file their own grievances. When I got there from the very beginning, they didn't have my meds, which was ugly. Um, Things didn't work out right. You know, uh, when I got there, it's dirty, filthy cells. So if you misbehave, they move you farther back into Baker Ward, into the back of the hallway or whatever. So I ended up all the way in the very back cells, like cell 76, straight across from me was an inmate. He was a decent dude, but he had his problems. And one of his problems is that he would defecate in his cell all the time. The staff refused to clean it. The whole Baker Ward in the back especially just smelled like an outhouse. It stunk. It reeked. So I filed a grievance on it, and they hated me for that. They had to go in there twice a day and spray his stuff. This was after me. I was there for about a month at the time. They never went in and cleaned it. Uh, Then they had to. The filth of that place was just disgusting. It was, uh, man, every cell was dirty. They never really cleaned it. They had inmate porters who were in a different ward who would come over. They didn't like cleaning it, so they wouldn't. They would do a poor job of doing it. My like third day there, second or third day there, they maced me. A sergeant did. I can't remember his name. It was either a sergeant or a lieutenant. Um, and they're not allowed to mace inmates specifically at Baker Ward and any other place that's like Baker Ward within ADC uh, just for holding the trap in protest to, uh, I think it was getting my food at the time. Uh, they didn't have my diet when I got there, neither. I, I received a kosher diet. I got attacked by like five COs, literally on camera, 
they started punching me, so of course I started defending myself. This is after they bum rushed me. There was a sergeant there and like four, four DOs, they all came rushing in and, and it was uncalled for, unnecessary. The staff were really abusive verbally, physically, sexual harassment all the time. It was punishment oriented, just like any other prison. That's what it was its focus on, where the mental health aspect of it was all secondary. And it was only okay if mental health stepped in and did anything if the COs said it was okay. When they preached about it being the opposite, when it really wasn't, it was a, I was only there for 72 days. Nobody's ever there that short of an amount of time, but they looked at it as they don't want you there because you know what you're doing because you can file grievances, and I was. I left there in June 2019, and then four months later I got paperwork saying that I was being charged with 12 felonies, or 11 felonies, from Baker Ward. About five months later, they ended up throwing one more on there. So I have 12 felonies here of assault on a corrections officer, where they're alleging that he nudged us with his elbow. He threw water balloons at us. His hand brushed up against us when he was pushing his food trap open. And it's just, there are a bunch of bull charges. And then a whole other aspect to, uh, look at this from is CRIPA, this Civil Rights of Institutionalized Persons Act, talks about when somebody's getting mental health treatment in a mental health institution, you know, you, you can't charge them for the stuff that they're charging me for. You know, and if you, of course, brutally assault somebody or something, then yeah, um, I'm not being accused of that. I'm being accused of sprinkling some water on somebody. Uh, so four months before that, I was in RAST Max. Um, that's the unit, and it's in Lewis Complex in Buckeye, Arizona. Uh, it's a super maximum custody, and it's for protective custody. I was IPS'd or IPC'd in voluntary protective custody, and I was sent there in August of 2018. Four months later, the COs set up an ambush for me to try to have me taken out. So I have a hit on me by the Mexican Mafia for standing up against racist, fascist organizations like them, Aryan Brotherhood, and other groups. So me and some friends, you know, we don't tolerate that stuff. So on the 23rd of December, the COs had me doused with boiling water. So they didn't give me any treatment that day. Uh, I had second-degree burns on the side of my face, my neck, my shoulder. They just act like it didn't happen. The next day, they moved me to a different hallway within RAST Max, and that's R-A-S-T Max, where, the, where it's known to be more violent. That was Christmas Eve. Within about two hours later, my door opened up, and they had set up an inmate ambush. So I ended up disarming uh, the dude and, of course, survived but I was bloody and I came out. We both walked out of the cell and the COs were right there. They were watching. So I ended up going to the hospital. Then I got treated for my second degree burns and concussion and, and some other head wounds. An investigation was done by the criminal investigation unit. And by the, uh, it was uh, found that two COs or two or three COs were responsible and they were fired, separated from state service. And one or two uh, sergeants were disciplined as well. And I have all this in writing from the director of prisons, David Shin. So yeah, 
they had set me up for that, and I, all my property was taken and destroyed at that place. They got me out of there within a few days. Within about five days, six days, they finally, the intelligence came and spoke to me. I had burns, and they took pictures of it. And they asked me what was going on, and they said, yeah, everything you said matches up with the video that we saw. Uh, we're going to look into it. Uh, within 48 hours of that, I was transferred out of there. I was moved around the state, and I ended up going to uh, Baker Ward in Phoenix, Arizona, after the, my lawyers requested for me to, to go to a place where I can receive proper mental health treatment, uh, and then they sent me there. And, and it, I think the reason I was treated like when I got to Baker Ward is because we pulled the strings to make it happen. So it's like ADC was in a situation, well, we have to put him there now. His lawyers asked for it. These are national lawyers. So, yeah, I'll put him there, but we're not going to give him any respect. So when I was there, I was going through the process of trying to recoup all my property. I lost about six, six, $700 worth of property, TV, books, legal books, legal paperwork. They ended up coming at me. CO4 Revere came and asked me, we could take $200. This is what the state's offering. The state attorney general's office is, is offering you 200 bucks. I just flipped on the bird and said, I ain't taking them again. That doesn't do anything. You guys are going to take 100% of that money as soon as you put it on my books because of the debt I owe you for, for stamps and stuff like legal stamps. And he goes, well, at least it's a start. So he conceded that I would get nothing in return. So I was kind of, uh, you know, I was on one when I was there. I was pissed off. I was mad. I was angry. Um, I didn't have any of my stuff. Uh, they had thrown it all away. And, and then on top of that, I was being treated like garbage. It's really ugly, and that's where I caught uh, 11 of the charges. One was stemmed from the December 23rd incident where I was hit with boiling water. They ended up saying that I assaulted a nurse, which is a total lie. And they ended up dropping that charge, of course, in the, dismiss in the plea agreement. So now I'm here facing that, hoping I don't get uh, any more extra time. And December is my sentencing. If, uh, December 16th of 2021 is my sentencing if I don't get another continuance. But then, here's the catch. Here's, I have to go to Pinal County. I'm in Maricopa right now. I have to go to Pinal County when I'm done with this and fight two more cases with three more felonies of the same exact thing where they're saying that in 2017, I assaulted two officers and a, a sergeant during two different incidents. And they said, uh, we have it on camera too. We had, we were actually filming it. So my lawyers two or three years ago said, all right, well, give us that camera footage. Let's see what you got. Well, we lost it. Because you know I didn't assault you guys. I, I'm the one who told them, look, it says here in the police report they have it on camera. Right? I remember the camera being there. It was there. They had a camera, but I didn't assault anybody. They assaulted me by slamming my hands in a food trap. Oh, but they chewed my hands up with, with that solid steel. I ended up having to go to the hospital that day for my hands, and then they said, oh, he spit on us. Oh, you effing liars, man. Uh, it's, it's their number one, their go-to thing. Uh, all they gotta say is, oh, he assaulted us. Thank you to Adrian and Perilous Chronicle for their contributions to the show. Adrian's legal defense fund is givebutter.com help for Adrian and we'll have a link to it on our website. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. 
You can call us to share your story, report on prison conditions, or let us know about an issue that you or a loved one is experiencing at 765-343-6236. That's 765-343-6236. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. And if you want to support our work, you can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at kitelineradio.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.